Hey guys, and welcome to the Movement Docs Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Mike. And we're just two guys who want to help students and clinicians grow in the field of rehab. Welcome to the show. Yeah, whenever you're ready, Mike. Okay, cool. Well, here we go. Hey guys, welcome to episode one of season two. I, well, I guess it's episode two now, isn't it? No, I episode, mean, it's still no. one. I think that first one was kind of like a prologue. Okay. It's like the chapter in the book that nobody reads. You know what I mean? <laughs> With the forward by the author. Mm-hmm. So, so that we're was like talking like about how important, you know, like this season was or whatever. And, then we're, and people are just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. We'll just fast forward to that. We want to get to the, the meat and potatoes of this. So, okay. Well, that being said then. Hey guys, welcome to episode one of season two of the Movement Docs podcast. We have a very special guest today, Vanessa Lee. I'm going to read the little bio here over here. So Vanessa is a physiotherapist based out of Toronto, Canada. She completed her undergrad in kinesiology at the University of Toronto and went on to complete her master's of physiotherapy at Oxford Brooks University in 2017. She currently works at Balance Physiotherapy, a private neuro clinic, and in her free time, she works with the development squad for the Canadian archery team. Awesome. Before pursuing a career in physiotherapy, Vanessa completed complete. Oh my goodness! Competed in the sport of archery for most of her life, having represented Canada at multiple World Championships, Pan Am Games, and World Cups. How cool is that, Vanessa? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm super excited to be here. We're super pumped to have you. Um, you know, and so we're really excited to kind of dive into a bunch of different stuff um, in terms of the worlds of archery and kind of like your experiences and all that kind of thing. So it should be a lot of fun. First of all, what's your favorite Canadian TV show that I've seen? Ooh, Canadian TV show. You know, it's a hard question because I watch mostly like American shows. I don't know. What's a, oh, Corner Gas? Uh, yeah, That's big Canadian fan of Corner show. Gas. My Same cousin has like. Uh, what? Kim's Convenience? Nope, don't know that one. Oh. Is there just a lot of, like, convenience store-themed TV shows? <laughs> I didn't think about that yet, but probably, yeah. There's a lot uh, of convenience stores in Canada. I just started <laughs> watching Letterkenny on Hulu. Oh, okay, I'm not too familiar with that You one. haven't seen that? That's absolutely hilarious. Oh, okay. It's basically, like, a cross between... Uh, I don't know how I would describe it. It's, like... Have you seen Trailer Park Boys? That's another. Yes. Yeah, so I have. It's, it's kind of like that, like rednecky, like Canadian kind of humor, but it's also incredibly like dry wit. So there's just like a lot of jokes that are rapid fire, like real fast. Um, mm. Very interesting. Mike, I think you would like it a lot. Okay. What uh, was it called again? It's called Letter Kenny. Letter Kenny. Okay. Yep. I got um, turned on to it by a couple people. Uh, that I work with, and then just some random friends that I have, and uh, it's absolutely hilarious. So, cool. well worth the watch. Um, Labatt Blue, what, what are your thoughts on Labatt Blue? <laughs> mm. I prefer Molson. Okay, okay. Or Moosehead. Okay. Mm. All right. Yeah. Um, all right, so I won't ever mention Labatt Blue again to you. Um, <laughs> is that like the – because I'm assuming you guys have like Coors Light, Bud, Bud Light, Miller Light. Is that what like Labatt Blue and like Molson's and Moosehead are, or are those more like craft beers? There's a ton of craft beers, especially where I'm from in Ontario, and really good craft beers. I I'm gonna be honest, I don't know too much about them, but I just know that there's a lot of indie-looking 
craft beers in Toronto. You go to the liquor store and there's just shelves and shelves of, you know, the cans that have a simple arrow here or like a triangle and you know that it's like an indie craft beer, you know? Nice. <laughs> and then uh, thoughts on Nickelback and Avril Lavigne. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Funny story. I was the biggest Avril Lavigne fan when I was in high school. Like I would show up to class in a tank top and a tie and shoes. <laughs> and I would I skipped school one time because she was doing a concert at the shopping mall. Actually, I live across the street from that shopping mall now. Skip class. Um, I had a wall of over 350 photos of her that I cut out from the magazine. It was kind of a little bit too far. Looking back in retrospect, it was a little bit crazy. I see but... nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was a big fan, really big fan. Nickelback, not so much. <laughs> okay, all right. I won't ever talk to you about Nickelback again. Um, I will. We can chat. What about uh, William Shatner? He, is he one of your greatest national treasures? I would say Jim Carrey is more, I would consider more mm -hmm. of a national treasure. You guys are going to claim him again? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's fine. He even admitted to, you know, loving Canadian healthcare. A recent show, I can't remember which one it was. But yeah. Love him. <laughs> and then curling. Let's talk about curling before oh. we get into archery. Because I think I've seen that you have a couple, like, Instagram posts curling. Yeah. It's pretty random. Pretty random. But... So I'm actually also Korean. So I was born in Canada, but my parents are Korean. My whole family's Korean. And recently at the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang, the, this Korean curling team, they like captured the hearts of everyone around the world. They're these small town girls who just won silver medals and they became huge celebrities. So they ended up coming to Canada. So my whole family went to go watch them after at the world championships and I actually got recruited somehow to be the translator. And then we became, me and the team, we became friends. I went to one of the girls' weddings this past summer. It's that weird. That is amazing. Yeah, it's so weird. But, like, I, our whole family fell in love with curling. And I think it kind of makes sense. Curling is kind of the, a mixture of all the sports I love. Obviously, archery. You have a giant target on the ice. It, I love golf as well. You have different shots in curling that kind of resembles golf. And then I love hockey, of course. As a Canadian, I have to love hockey. And it's like curling because there's ice. So all my favorite sports in one is kind of hard curling. And the stone's like a giant hockey puck. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like the – have you guys seen the new Oreos, the, the most stuffed? No. Okay, oh. well, you guys need to welcome to 2019 because it's a thing. <laughs> um, but basically, the people at Nabisco decided to put like this – can you see my hands? This is – Video now we can actually like talk to each other. Oh, that's awesome! There's like literally like that much cream between the Oreos, and I'm pretty sure there's like 150 calories in each cookie now. Hmm. It's, 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 it's good for your soul. I would imagine that curling the curling stone. It's called a stone, right? You're thinking of the Oreo. Yeah, it's called yeah. Stone. It's like it's like the most stuffed Oreo version of like a regular Oreo. So like the hockey puck is to Oreo as the stone is to like most stuffed Oreo. Okay, if you guys come to Toronto or Canada next winter, we're going to take those most stuffed Oreos and slide them down a rink. And, <laughs> and we're going to play a game of curling with our, our, those Oreos. Oh, so, let's do it. Do we still use, like, the normal brooms for like, an Oreo? Because my question is, where a stone is smooth, the surface of an Oreo is textured, and it has the, the logo on it. 
would that affect its like friction coefficient on the ice? Probably. We can lick them first and then send them down. <laughs> Do we like dump them in milk and then go? Yeah. Or would that yeah. be insensitive to people that have a dairy intolerance that also play curling? I ha I'm lactose intolerant, but I suck it up and I, I deal with the consequences. Al almond milk, cashew milk, soy milk. No, I just I just drink regular two percent milk and I deal with it after. <laughs> <laughs> I like that mentality. That's a good mentality to have. Mm -hmm. Just kind of it's it's kind of very reminiscent of the level up initiative. <laughs> Mike, I can't believe you don't have a T-shirt yet. So I know. I to buy you one. Um, <laughs> the whole like, uh, well, I, it's not one of his ex tenants, but I feel like we do kind of have conversations about like in sucking. In, wait, that came out wrong. Embracing the suck. I was gonna suck, say in sucking the brace, but that's not right. Embracing the suck, like kind of grinding and like just persevering. Mm -hmm. So, good on yeah. you for for drinking two percent milk. <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> well, I love that segue. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so that being said, uh, we've already learned a little bit about you, Vanessa, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So like you said, I competed in archery for most of my life. I started when I was in, in about high school, which is relatively late again, uh, compared to other people. So I competed. I was really lucky to go around the world and do archery. And recently I decided to focus more on physio. So I retired in archery. It's weird using the word retire when I'm, I still think I'm pretty young, but now I'm working at a private neuro clinic in Toronto called Balance Physiotherapy. And we deal mostly with people who have um, had motor vehicle accidents, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, uh, stroke. And it's, it's really, really interesting. I completely fell in love with neuro. And I guess the last thing that we haven't mentioned, we, we kind of mentioned, but I'm a level up mentee, a same group as you, Mike. And where was Michael Amato? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were, Jake, you were like a mentee last season, I think. Yeah. I was in the first cohort and I had, um, I'm trying to think, I had Josh, AKA the human movement rehab. Oh, cool. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Gary's pretty big on social media. I think he's Dr. Gary Dillon on Instagram. Um, Sarah was our mentor. It was it was good. Had Liam. Liam was in the group. Jasmine Marcus was in the group. Um, Jess out in California. I forget her last name. We had a, we had a pretty solid group. It was a good experience. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a cool experience to kind of uh, bring people together, you know, um, people that are kind of motivated for change and kind of improving things. And um, yeah. So how did you first hear about it? Just kind of curious. Through Instagram? Uh, I think I was just trying to find people to follow and I was just getting into working a little bit more and I, I felt a little, I don't know, things were a little bit dull in life and at, and at work and it just happened to be the exact perfect time that I found Level Up Initiative. It was, um, uh, yeah, I can't really remember exactly how I got into this huge rabbit hole of Instagram people on it, but I found them somehow, and it was just exactly what I needed to find at the, at the right time. That's cool. Yeah. 
Well, that's that's a, that's awesome too, because like I'm always a huge proponent of um, you kind of like the summation of the five people that you spend the most time with. Yeah. Um, and so you know when you kind of surround yourself with people that are equally motivated and, and kind of challenging each other to be better and to level up, um, you can you know you ultimately experience that growth too. And then uh, kind of you get fired up with other people that are fired up about stuff. So that's cool. So, totally, I yeah. can't agree more. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, all right. This is always a fun question that we ask too. So, uh, what's an unusual habit or some absurd thing that you love? Ah, there's, <laughs> there's quite a few. There's quite a few. As you get to know me, I'm like pretty freaking weird. But the first thing I I just notice it suddenly. But I'll be like at a at a shopping mall or something and wash my hands and then take some paper to dry my hands and then suddenly I'm I'm cleaning the counters and I notice I sprayed some water on the mirror so I start washing the mirror and before I know it I've pretty much like cleaned the entire counter in this public bathroom hmm. that's kind of weird about me maybe I'm a little bit I little, have a little bit of like obsessive compulsive disorder hmm. yeah which is kind of cool yeah. <laughs> it's functional yeah <laughs> and I guess another thing is I, I, I go kind of crazy with cake batter this happened just the other day but I was baking a cake one of those like instant Betty Crocker things and it's normal to I think lick the 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 spatula or something once you're done, but mm-hmm. I noticed that I started putting the spatula back into the cake like batter that I had already put in the pan and just licking it and then rinsing it off and then doing that again and pretty much ended up with three three quarters of the cake batter that I set it off with. Nice. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're just trying to streamline the baking process. I, I can't, I mean, I've done that before. It's mm-hmm. a legitimate, it's a legitimate technique. I'm not gonna, we're not gonna publicly shame you for that. Yeah, I appreciate it. What kind of cake was it? Was it like birthday cake or chocolate cake or? Birthday cake with the sprinkles. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, was it someone's birthday or were you just a fan of it? Okay. We'll pretend it was mine. My birthday is actually in November, but we'll say that it was mine. Okay. Uh, send us the, the link below for your birthday and we'll put that in the show notes so everyone can send you uh, cake batter. Thank you. Please send it already mixed and raw, not cooked. She's gonna receive like twelve boxes of just like raw <laughs> dough. Just I'm just, gonna, I'm gonna send mine in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> just just a Ziploc bag with a stamp on the front of it. Awesome. Can you mail awesome. that? Can you, is that legal to do that? We'll find out. Yeah. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I'm pretty sure the mailman's gonna slash my tires if I do that. Or he might eat the batter. Yeah. Mm. If it's good. I would. Yeah. I guess I probably shouldn't put egg in it then. Mm. I don't think that would keep very well in the United States postal system. (laughs) Probably not. No. All right. So should we actually talk about real stuff now, Mike? (laughs) Welcome welcome to how every podcast that we do goes. Rabbit holes. Um, So let's talk about archery because this is something that when Mike and I had talked about like guests and who we're going to have on – we were both like we we know absolutely nothing about archery. I think one time when I was little at the Renaissance Festival in Maryland, like I got one of those little tiny like fake bow and arrows and I shot it a couple times. That's yeah. my entire experience with archery. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you a little bit. So actually, funny story. I, I went to summer camp as a kid when I was probably about 10, 11, and they had archery there, and I was so excited. But the day before that, I was supposed to do archery. 
someone was being a little bit too silly and I think they shot his friend in the arm. So then they canceled archery forever. <gasps> and I never got to try it. And years passed, you know, things changed, life happened, and I completely forgot about it. But I got started in archery when the Olympics were happening in 2004. And at the time, I was visiting family and friends in Korea for the first time ever. And we were supposed to visit this beautiful island uh, called Jeju-do, and there happened to be a typhoon. So we were stuck inside this tiny little cabin, and the only thing on TV was the Olympics. And in Korea, archery is huge. We, we don't really get it on TV much when the Olympics are happening here in Canada. I don't know about you guys in the States, but mm -hmm. in Korea, archery is huge. So I happened to watch this amazing woman named Park Sung-hyun win the gold medal. And from that moment, I knew I wanted to be exactly like her. Also, my cousin was behind me saying, oh, my God, that looks so easy. I could probably do archery and, and you know, shoot tens all the time. So I thought, you know, screw you. I'm going to do a better job than you, and I'm going to prove to you that I can do archery and that you can. So that's <laughs> how I started. But I'll tell you about the sport itself, if that's all right. So yeah. archery is at the world champion. We have our world championships uh, every two years. We have uh, archery at the Olympics, and we shoot at 70 meters. So... That's almost the length of a, a football field, I think, like an American football field. Wow. And the, the size of the target that we shoot is 122 centimeters. So I don't know what that is in, like, in American measurement, but it's, uh, it's, it's big. 100 it's centimeters is one meter, right? Google, yeah. help, me, help me out, Google. 120 <laughs> centimeters. Okay, well, that's 47.2 inches, which is roughly four feet. Cool. Yeah. So roughly four feet. So that's the size of the full target, and that full target is split up into 10 rings, so they get smaller and smaller. And the innermost ring is worth 10 points, and it's about the size of a grapefruit. It's about this big. I can show you on a podcast. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so at 70 meters, in order to shoot a perfect 10, the point of your arrow actually has to be within the diameter of a ballpoint pen. So can you Whoa. imagine that? Like about one millimeter, your, the point of your arrow has to be yes, <laughs> within that diameter. Look at all this technology. This video podcasting is awesome. Everyone can visualize what it actually is. <laughs> but crazy is you have to think about wind as well. Mm. Think about all the different factors. Think about rain. And it's kind of crazy when you actually think about it. So. How a competition works is everybody shoots 72 arrows with the highest possible score being 720. Okay. Then you get ranked, and then it's eliminations, and then the last archer standing wins. Oh, that's kind of cool. So do you, is this a real thing that people do? I'm just curious, because you always see this in like movies and TV shows and cartoons and whatnot. How many times have you walked out there, kind of like looked around and just gone, <laughs> does that work like do people do that uh, i guess yeah like you do it in golf too but i don't know i i'm more so like throw the grass up in the air because it looks a little bit more dramatic do you do like the lebron do you just take a bunch of glass grass clippings and just be like <laughs> <laughs> and i think let it go <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the trailer for the second one, by the way? Not, oh my gosh, it looks good. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a new, there's, 
Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. I was just gonna. I was just gonna like fangirl about Frozen Two for a minute. So. Oh wait, there's a. Fr- I I did not know there was a Frozen Two happening. Hmm. I live in a box yep. mostly, so. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, so you're shooting from roughly like a football field's length. And you have a target that's four feet with 10 rings going in. The smallest one's the size of a grapefruit. But to, in order to get a perfect 10, you have to hit something that's like a ballpoint pen diameter. Yeah, pretty much. You can't wow. let your arrow deviate more than the tip of the ballpoint pen in order to shoot the pen. Wow. Okay. That sounds very difficult. <laughs> How do you do this? I mean, obviously, there's bows and arrows, but like, that just seems insane. I don't know. Some of the best people in the world can hit that 10 probably about 80% of the time, 85% of the time, and actually probably even more than that. But they're really good. And it's it's kind of more of a mental game than anything. Because mm-hmm. once you get to the highest levels, everybody knows that feeling of how to actually shoot a perfect 10. But it's whether you can repeat that over and over again and not let your own mind get in the way and you start second guessing your shot and stuff. It's mm-hmm. almost more mental than is any. Gotcha. What kind of stuff like goes through your mind then as you're as you're getting ready to like step up and start to make that shot and kind of and get through your setup? Like, do you have things that you say to yourself or, or like any strategies or tips or things? Like, what what kind of goes through your head as you're getting ready to shoot? Yeah, it's a good question. I think as you start training more and more, start competing more, you get a process that mm-hmm. you have to repeat every single time. So. My process would start as soon as I'm standing up from the chair to get ready to shoot what we call an end. So you shoot six arrows all together, then everybody goes and gets the arrows, and you shoot another end of six arrows. So my process would start as soon as I'm going up the line to shoot the first arrow of the, the group. And then I have a process that I follow between each arrow, and it's the same thing every single time. So an example of, of one guy, actually, who's one of the best archers in the world from Korea, he has kind of like a physical process as well where he'll adjust his glasses before every shot. And then you can watch a video of him adjusting his glasses again, taking the shot, 10. Adjusting his glasses, shot, 10. So I think for everybody else, for everybody you have different processes or, or habits that you fall into, but my process would just be doing the exact same thing every single time. And then when I'm shooting, almost shooting without any thought in my mind because mm. at that point it's so automatic yeah that's kind of what yeah that's kind of how it was so that's... two two things that this reminds me oh look i can do i can do numbers dude this video thing is awesome <laughs> um one there's a book that mike and i had just read recently called atomic habits are mm. you familiar with that at all no but i'll write it? that down really good book actually if you have uh if you have do you have audible no, no, I don't. It's a good uh, audiobook. It's a, yeah, a good audiobook. But if you have Audible, we can send it to you for free. Mm. Or even if you don't have Audible, you can sign up and we can give you a free book. Um, anyways, the whole premise of Atomic Habits, and, and Mike, you jump in when you, like, if you have something about the book too, but um, it's all about, like, changing, like, the little small things and, like, looking at, like, the very small like tasks and processes which help drive some of the bigger things that we do. So yeah. it's interesting to me because you mentioned like, you know, he like literally adjusts glasses. And so it's like this small little trigger that he does. And because of that, he's able to replicate the same thing like 
every single time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, you're setting up your systems to kind of help you and kind of automate those processes a little bit. Um, so more of your, I guess, your RAM or your energy can be towards, you know, making sure everything's moving good and everything like that. But you get your whole process you set up and then go from there. And I then love the that. second thing that it reminds me of is, I don't know if anyone else watched Pokemon as a child, but <laughs> every time Ash was about to throw a Pokeball, he would turn his hat backwards and then say, like, I choose you, insert name of Pokemon here. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done that when I shot, when I did archery. Just every shot. <laughs> you get, like, the dramatic music playing in the background. I choose you, ten rings. Boom. <laughs> and another one. <laughs> now, is archery just because, like, I feel like, I don't know, it's it's almost like a game of chess at 120 yards or no, 70 meters. What is that in yard? I don't know. There's Is yards even an American measurement? I think yards is. You're one of the last people of the earth to use yards. How many how many furlongs is that? <laughs> Anyways, what was I gonna say? Oh, are there are there like because like in, I guess in 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 this professional sports world now you have people that are very like flamboyant and over the top and do like just crazy shenanigans mm -hmm. for partially for attention but like you know like that's kind of their thing, right? Is there anyone in the archery world because it seems like it's such a quiet and like concentration patience based activity are there people that like run around and like just do crazy stuff and have like you know is there like a dennis rodman with like 15 piercings everywhere and like a rainbow like afro like what uh i i can think of a couple people who kind of have bigger personalities and you know the audience really loves them but i think jake you need to get into archery and you can be the dennis rodman of archery I think you should do it. <laughs> I don't think I can pull it off. One, I don't know. So now that we have video, we can talk about how bad my shoulder motion is. Um, this is my right arm. Oh. That's your internal rotation? Oh. <laughs> this is my oh. left arm. Oh. Yeah, I don't know that I could, like... I don't even hey, know that that looks pretty good. That looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it hurts my bicep when I do that. We can work on that. Yeah. Do you mm -hmm. know a good therapist I can see? Uh, I heard that these two guys, Jake and Mike, are pretty decent, but I don't oh. know if I could get your other contact information. <laughs> <laughs> That's phenomenal. I'm going to go get a butter knife. Do some eyes, Tim. Oh, there you go. Oh no, that's Not that one. that's a that's a sharp knife. I don't know if you want to use that. Oh. <laughs> okay, so I'm kind of curious too. Um, so you, we talked about kind of like the the setup for the field and and how you score the points and all that kind of stuff. Are there different types of bows and that kind of thing that you would use, um, or is everybody using like a similar style of bow? Like I'm just kind of curious. I don't really know much. Yeah, that's a that's an awesome question. There's actually two main types of bows that compete at the world championships so compound and recurve and recurve is what i shoot it it looks more traditional like it's pretty long and it has all these things that hang off like stabilizers and sights that that sort of thing but then you have the compound bow which actually has wheels and pulleys 
Mm. So the difference is when you're at full draw with a compound, um, you're actually holding a fraction of the weight. Mm. Also, you can shoot a lot faster with compound bows and you have a mechanical release okay. as well as a scope that actually zooms into the target a bit. So it's a mm. lot more accurate, a compound bow. But the only type of bow at, at the Olympics is the recurve, which is the previous type that I talked about. Gotcha. Yeah. And the third main type of bow that is uh, not at the Archer World Championships, but they're at other sort of competitions, is the bear bow, which is just a bow. No sight, no stabilizers, just the bow, string, and arrows. That's Whoa. The bear bow. Okay. That sounds like it'd be challenging to shoot, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't really shot a bear bow because I, my, I don't want to ruin my ego. <laughs> I rely on the extra thing hanging off my bow. Mm-hmm. So now you I, said, oh, go ahead, Jake. I, I couldn't bring a crossbow. Oh, crossbows are cool. We don't have those at competitions, but those are really cool. And, you know, you could try and sneak one in, but I'm pretty sure someone's going to catch you. Because, I mean, if I'm going to be the Dennis Rodman of American archery, <laughs> I'm going to use a crossbow. I support you. I support you in all that you want to do. <laughs> Added bonus, you could defend yourself against vampires, too. So, yeah, Is it cross- sure. Yeah, uh, you just, I think you have to do a stake, though. Like, it has to be a pure wooden stake. Oh, it does. That's right. You'd have to have pretty good aim. Um, but garlic, <laughs> I mean, you could, like, you could probably, like, just, just, like, roast some garlic and, like, cover the whole steak with it. Maybe a little bit of salt and pepper. Um, <laughs> do some, like, delicious. <laughs> the salt bay. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm loving this video thing. <laughs> we should have done this such a long time ago. <laughs> uh, welcome to 2019, us. Yep, we're there. <laughs> totally using like 2006 technology. It's perfect when, though. When did Skype, I'm gonna, this is, uh, when did Skype come out? I wish I had a, like a, a thing that I could talk to and just ask it like. Siri? Computer. <laughs> I do have Siri. Skype. <laughs> when was it invented? Let's guess. All right, I'm going to say 2002. Oh, I was going to say 2001. Mm. But let me let me separate our answers a bit. I'm going to say 1999. Okay. Are we doing prices right rules? Yes. $1. So yes. <laughs> closeness without going over. It's actually 2003. Whoa. Okay. Wow. You right. win. You win that one. <laughs> yeah. 2003. 2003. What was even happening in 2003? Mm. Um, uh, stuff. Yeah. Some uh, stuff happened, some things. Founded by Nicholas Zenstrom from Sweden and Janice Fries from Denmark. Oh, that's an awesome last name. Yes. Yeah. The more you know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Learned all sorts of things today. That's so... With archery, you mentioned you competed at, like, all sorts of crazy high-level competitions. Yeah, a couple of them. A couple of them. I, I was really lucky. I competed at a couple world championships. I think three world championships I went to. A bunch of World Cups. So that happens every year, and you have different stages. And Pan Am Games, I was in Mexico in 2011. And University World Championships, University Games... But the one actually competition that I 
didn't make it to was the Olympics. And I have some heartbreaking stories about that, but I, I tried for 2012 and, oh, 2008 and 2012. I didn't make those, it was close, but yeah, those are the, that's the competition I didn't make it to, unfortunately. That's crazy. Cause you said you started, like you saw it in the 2004 Olympics. Yeah, and then started after that. So in three years, you had a shot at making the Olympic Games. That is insane. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Hmm. There's not too many archers, to be fair. There's not too many archers in Canada. So to make the national team is not like making the national hockey team, you know. But I, f- I feel like I worked hard in those couple of years when I really did, when I first started. <laughs> what is it like just, because I can't even fathom what it's like to compete on like a world level like is it super intimidating to be up against people and then because i guess like you see people that are like our age playing in the nfl now and they're playing against yeah. people like tom brady that we all watched when we were growing up and still watch because he's old um sure. but like did you end up competing against people that you looked up to when you were first getting in the sport and was that like a crazy like celebrity moment where you did you just like geek out or was it like you just played it off like totally cool, but on the inside, you were like, oh my God, that's so awesome to see that person. No, I, I totally freaked out. <laughs> I wish, like, I'm not even going to joke, but I was I, such a fangirl in archery. I knew like everybody's names and what countries they came from and all their stats and all that. And I wish I had held it in a little bit better. But as soon as I got to the competitions, I was just like, ah, I love you. <laughs> I remember I was in a, in a bus heading to a competition beside um, one, an archer from Great Britain that I really, really liked. And all I could say was, and she's from Great Britain. I don't know why, but Spanish came out because I was so excited. <laughs> and then she said, muy bien, you do? And I'm like, I don't know any more Spanish. I'm just going to. <laughs> I fangirled totally. That is like one of the most quintessential, like awkward moments. That's that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. So in in the process of like fangirling over like famous archers, did the Avril Lavigne pictures like slowly start to become like archery pictures, or did you just take like a sharpie and like draw like a bow and arrow on Avril Lavigne? <laughs> Just like she's like she's got like a skateboard and then there's like a quiver on her back, you know, ripped so jeans funny. and a and a recurve bow. That would have been awesome. I don't know why I didn't think of that. I don't I don't know why, but I I guess the wall wall came down of all the Avril photos and I started sticking up a couple more archery photos for sure. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So we've talked a lot about kind of like uh, what kind of goes into um, kind of like your practice habits and like that kind of thing and competing at the games, which is awesome. Um, you've kind of gone a little bit of an offshoot um, in the social media world too, kind of creating archery rehab, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and like what your inspiration was for creating that? Yeah, I, it just happened recently. I think at the end of 2018, when I was just sitting around and I realized that there was such a void for archers, and it's kind of a real niche that I'm trying to target. But when I was competing, there wasn't a lot of information about injury risk reduction or performance or rehab. So 
I wanted to create that for archers. And basically the goal of archer rehab is to provide that information and educate archers so that they can help themselves. It's not really to scare them into thinking that they have this injury or, or this problem with their body, but it's kind of just to empower them as much as I can and hope that they can feel a little bit more educated or ready to help themselves. Oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. Okay. So, uh, I mean, you got a ton of different like videos on there and kind of things like that. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about, I don't know, some of the, like you do different types of exercises and like that kind of thing too. And, and uh, kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm trying to figure it out as I go. All I, I knew was that I wanted to provide some sort of information. So I'm finding that my posts take three different forms, kind of. First is just education. So it won't be in a video. It'll probably be a little bit more text where you can scroll through different graphics and that sort of thing. And I talked about pain. I talked about tendinopathies and how to deal with them and about progressive loading and also about whether it's a flow chart of whether you should increase your bow weight or not. That's kind of about progressive loading as well. Mm -hmm. Another one is a video about what a specific injury is, just kind of a little bit of education and trying to understand what someone might be going through. And the last one is, yeah, like you talked about exercises. And I think those are my favorites because a lot of people can relate to them and that's what people are really looking for. So those are the kind of three main posts that I do. Also, I just uh, got a partnership with an archery company, which oh, is nice. kind of, yeah, it's cool that an archery company is excited about this injury risk reduction, um, rehab, and performance, and they just want to help provide information for archers. So that's happening, and they're doing some more exercise videos with me. Oh, how cool. I love that. So what what kind of, I mean, obviously, I, I would imagine like upper extremity injuries, but what um what kinds of things do you normally see in an archer population? Yeah, that's a that's an awesome question. And I think the reason why I talked about tendinopathies first was because that's probably one of the most common injuries among archers. It's such a repetitive sport, and I think we don't often prepare our bodies enough to deal with the loads that we have to move around or carry. So we see a lot of tendinopathies, either mostly in the shoulder, I'd say, sometimes in your elbow um, and wrist also fingers as well. So we've been seeing a lot more finger injuries recently. And I think that's because a lot of archers, especially guys are trying to increase their bow weight so much, but they're maybe not physically ready to deal with that bow weight. So we're getting a lot more strains here and tendinopathies in their fingers and wrists. I think we see like muscle strains, um, which is a little bit more, you know, acute and you can deal with a little bit more in the short term. And the last thing, that I just saw recently is TOS. And it, I think it's a lot more rare, but it makes sense in archery because of the repetitive nature of our sport and kind of the positions that our shoulders are in. But just saw TOS recently. Hmm. Now is this yeah. mostly on the, the draw? So is it is it called like a draw arm and what's the and other bow one? Bow arm. Bow arm, okay. So is it mostly on the draw arm that you see this stuff? Uh, it kind of depends. So on the drawing side, we see a lot more on the shoulder because that's where like, the strain is here or a lot of, where you need a lot of the strength. Um, also, the drawing side fingers and wrists, uh, more so fingers, I'd say. And then on the bow side, I see a lot more stuff happening in the elbow and in the wrist. And I think that's because you, ha you get this motion a lot of your wrist kind of coming down and going up into flexion and extension. So that's why you get some problems in the in the elbow there. 
Gotcha. Now, I'm kind of curious, um, you've mentioned kind of bow weight a couple of different times. Um, is that related to like the amount of weight that you're pulling this way, or is it actually the weight of the bow? Just kind of curious. Yeah, it's actually it's actually both. Which okay. a lot of people don't think, but this is, I guess we could call it the draw weight or the bow weight more commonly. And then this right here can be like the bow mass weight. So how mm -hmm. much you're actually lifting or how much it takes to lift up your bow, which on, on average is I think about between five to seven pounds, depending on how much weight you have there. And then the draw weight here is for women, maybe anywhere from 35 pounds to 40 pounds. Mm -hmm. And in men, probably right now about 45 pounds to 50 pounds. Gotcha. Now, is there, I mean, this is just a thought. So with more, I guess, more bow weight, does that shoot it further or faster or, or what's the, what's the kind of benefit of, of increasing the bow weight versus not? Awesome question. Cool. <laughs> this is so exciting. There's a couple benefits. So first, yeah, your arrows do go faster. And the advantage of that is that they don't have to go up in an arc as much. So mm. because they're going faster, they can fly a little bit straighter to the target. So it's going to be less affected by wind. Gotcha. It, it, your arrow spends less time in the air. Also, it's less affected by the wind that's higher up. Mm. So that's an advantage. Um, also, you get a better, sometimes people get a better shot feel. So mm. I don't know how to sort of explain this, but if you're carrying, if you're uh, drawing a bow that's a little bit too light, you might feel a little bit flimsy. Like you don't have enough mm. resistance keeping you in place, but with enough weight, the right amount of weight, you can feel kind of stronger in your shot. So I think cool. that's two main advantages. The last one is something that we might not mention a lot, but the mental advantage that you might have, thinking, well, I'm having, I have three pounds more than the person standing next to me on the line, so I feel like my arrows are going to fly straighter, fly a little bit faster, and I feel a little bit stronger, so you have that mental side to it, too. Oh, that's cool. How are you measuring the the draw force? Is that like because in baseball we've got like a you know there's like high speed cameras or lasers or whatever that pick up like ball speed so you can see if a pitcher throws like you know 95, 99, whatever. Do you have that in archery? Is there somebody like clocking your your like draw force with like a little speed gun or something? Or they have those where you can actually measure the arrow speed, but then we also have a device that you just hold in your hand and it has a little hook. And it hooks onto the string, and you pull it all the way back until your arrow meets the length that you normally shoot, and then it just measures the how much how heavy your bow is. So is, you mentioned the like the length the length of the arrow too. So if you have less draw force, do you have to use like a shorter arrow? Hmm. Oh, that's a that's a tough question. So you would think maybe, but the length of your arrow is actually related to how long your arm is and how long distance distance is. I don't know if you can see that, but basically <laughs> from, from your fingers here to pretty much the front of your hand. And we have something on the bow called a clicker. If you just go to Google and type in archery clicker, it's kind of this draw check. So it's this small piece of metal that, so this is the arrow, this is the clicker. But once you draw your arrow back, this piece of metal will go click and then you shoot. So it's kind of, you know that you've drawn back the exact same amount of time, uh, the exact same distance, it'll click, and then you shoot. So that's, oh, that's kind nice. of the length of the arrow. Cool. 
that that kind of speaks uh, back to that kind of process thing we were talking about earlier. So you know you're getting that consistent draw each single time that you're getting ready to shoot. Yeah, exactly. You can have a terrible shot, shoot with weird form, but if you can do that the exact same every time, then you're going to be golden. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So kind of curious to, um, oh, where did that thought go? It's like, it was like right here in my head. And now it's like floating away. Um, process. You didn't shoot fast enough. It went, the wind was, <sighs> the wind just, it, it just took it, it took it away. Come back. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's what it was. Okay. So, uh, you know, we talked about how, uh, you know, archery is a lot of like the mental side of things too. Right. Um, and it makes me think a lot of about, uh, kind of like resiliency in that kind of regard. So, uh, are there any like strategies that you employ or, um, techniques, you know, so say you go up and you're getting ready to do your shot and you get your shot and it's, it's kind of like way off or the wind took it or something crazy like that happened. Um, how do you kind of put that behind you? And, and get ready for the next shot to make sure that it's still consistent. Like, do you have any strategies or tips that you uh, kind of employ? Totally. I think that is really tough. And I don't think anybody in the world has fully, you know, mastered that. It's something that we're always trying to get better at. But the cool thing about archery is that it's not like golf, where if you shoot into the woods, your next shot is trying to get out of the woods. You know, in archery, you shoot the target. If it's a terrible shot, your next one is a completely new one that has no relation to your previous shot. So I think it's just getting in, stopping negative um, talk and trying to just refocus yourself onto what your process is. Reimagining what a good shot looks like and feels like and trusting that you can do that on your next shot and then just executing it. Nice. Okay. So it, it's probably like a combination of, let's say it was that gentleman with the glasses kind of put, resetting the glasses. is like, okay, new, new shot here. Um, and then that kind of visualization aspect too. Is that what you're kind of getting? Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. totally. You can reset your focus by imagining and thinking about what it feels like to shoot that perfect shot or shoot a good shot, and then just trusting that you can do it. So just resetting, like you said. Cool. So there definitely seems to be a lot of like um, mental and psychological techniques and stuff that you use. But what about the physical stuff? Like, is there, uh, you know, like if I Google like archery workout, am I going to get like a a periodized like back squat routine for this stuff or is it more upper body focused do you guys do like conditioning what, what does it look like i think you pretty much nailed what i feel is missing in archery is that we do talk about the mental game a lot but i told you that guys are pulling 50 pounds every shot so 50 times 72 is a whole lot of weight that you're actually physically moving i don't know what that is but in the uh, end we're like in a training, in a day of training, we'll shoot maybe 350 arrows. So think about shooting 350 arrows with 50 pounds each time. I mean, that's a couple of tons of weight, I think. And we're really missing that in our tree. We're missing the strength and conditioning side about it, where I think a lot of people are okay with just shooting a lot of arrows, but don't realize how important it is to do the physical work outside of shooting, especially because it's such a one-sided sport making sure that you maintain some sort of balance on your, on your opposite side as well. Something that we're kind of missing. Cool. Well, that's where you come in, right? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning every day too. And there's a lot of things that I need to figure out and, and better understand. But I think it's an encouraging thing. This whole archery rehab, I feel like sometimes I'm learning more out of it than the people that I'm trying to target. So it's a win-win, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I think it's cool. I mean, it's you're, you're providing uh, information, like you said, that's not kind of readily available or out there, um, and so you can help others. But in the process of doing so, uh, in order to kind of provide that information, you get to learn some stuff too to make sure that you can provide it in a coherent way. So it's uh, that's awesome. Kind of a, like you said, a win-win. Yeah. That's so freaking cool. <laughs> so are there like I guess kind of on the topic of like strength and conditioning for archers? Is there a bigger push within the community to to be more like physically engaged in preparation for it. Yeah, I think it's starting to go in the right direction. When you see the best in the world, they're training a lot outside of the the arrows that they're shooting. They have personal trainers or strength trainers. They're they're working. They're doing a lot of prehab stuff. They're making sure that they're physically strong before they're training, and that's really encouraging because that's the best archers in the world who are leading that sort of leaving that fight there. And I think the rest of the world is going to follow. Everybody follows whatever the best in the world are doing. And because the best in the world are starting to do more strength and conditioning stuff, it's really encouraging. Cool. Be the change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really good. So mm-hmm. question I would pose to you, mm-hmm. is, it always, is it always wise to follow the best in the world? Hmm. Very good question. Very good question. And I don't think always. I don't think always, but in this case, when people are doing more physical work and strength and conditioning, I mean, I think in sport where you are pushing so much weight, that is the right direction. I don't think in, in this in this instance, I don't think doing less physical training and work would ever be the right answer. But at the same time, you do need to be critical. Like we're talking about critical thinking right now in, in our level up uh, group. So you always do need to be critical. I mean, if they were doing something completely different and it doesn't really make sense, then of course question it. But because the best in the world are working harder at strength training and conditioning, I think that's that's encouraging to see. Because I guess the when you mention like best in the world, the image that always comes to my mind in like the rehab setting is is cupping, right? I mean, cupping's been around for forever, but it wasn't really until Michael Phelps started having all those, like, spots on his back that people were like, I have to have this as as some sort of, like, rehab modality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the discussion on its mechanism stuff is we can talk about that, like, later, but, um, you know, it's just one of those things. Like, is that truly something that's needed, or is it just kind of like a a fad? Same thing with KT tape, right? The Olympic beach volleyball players it exploded because it was all over their bodies and all over TV. And so people were like, Oh, I need that because that's what the best in the world does. Mm. That's true. And I think there's nothing really to lose as long as we're always being critical of it Mm -hmm. and always asking why. But again, when it comes to simple strength and conditioning, I think we can also ask why or how or, you know, the specific ways in which we're doing the strength and conditioning, always be questioning the, the method. But there's no question that being stronger and physically prepared is going to help um, with performance, injury risk reduction, and, and confidence. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. I just want to play devil's advocate. I love uh, it. Like, I, <laughs> obviously, I am very much a proponent for people getting stronger. Um, but I think it just because of the talk of like Olympic sport and stuff like that, it, yeah. it kind of made me think of those things. So always stay critical. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That is neat. Yeah, you mentioned the level up initiative and how we're kind of going through that kind of critical thinking piece too, um, kind of questioning and thinking um, and all that. So kind of speaking about that, I mean, I know we touched on it a little bit earlier um, that we're both kind of in this cohort and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, how has this experience been for you so far and kind of like what have you learned about yourself uh, being in this uh, January cohort? Yeah, it, it's been awesome. So I started following Level Up just shortly after it started, just over a year ago. I guess that's when you were in the in the paper. Um, possibly. Found it. Uh, it's yeah. been last year was a blur. I remember talking to Zach on the <laughs> podcast before it came yeah. out, and then I remember like it being like this secretive, like slowly revealing information and people that like new Zach were like posting stuff and sharing things. And it was like, Ooh, what's going on. And then there was like the check mark and it was kind of like, you know, something's coming in, in the field of rehab. that's going to like change the world. And, um, and then, you know, everyone was super excited with, with like when I actually hit, I don't remember when, I don't know if it was like August or September, October, somewhere in the fall. Mm, okay. But that's when your cohort was somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's been a really awesome experience so far. And it's, it's so well organized right now. Um, we're going through the critical thinking module, and we're just about to have our group chat with our, our mentor group. And our first call was so encouraging. And I think I really resonated a lot with you, Mike. I just, your energy, I, I guess people can see this through the podcast or video cast. <laughs> are you standing right now? I always feel like yes. you're ready to, yeah, you look like you're ready to, jump into the screen or like wrestle a bear or something. That really, I loved it. I think that happened with a lot of the other people in our group too, where you're just feeding off the energy. So it's been really encouraging. And the whole Level Up initiative and being in this mentorship group as well has just helped me learn a lot about myself. Maybe areas in which I'm lacking a lot and areas in which I feel like I'm already, I'm doing a pretty good job. So I need to continue fostering that growth. Yeah, it's been really cool so far. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's uh, it's such an awesome opportunity to talk with like minded individuals and uh, people that are excited about change and growth. Um, but it's also nice that, you know, some of these modules are working on, you know, some of those more like soft skills, too. Right. So, you know, it's like uh, reflecting and you know, making sure that, you know, you're understanding yourself and, and kind of like what you're representing, thinking critically about, you know, the different decisions that you make, understanding your inherent biases and, and how you can overcome those um, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's cool. It's it's really cool to kind of look at those because I don't know you can spend so much time looking at all these different techniques you know like oh you know i'm going to take this certification i'm going to get really good at this technique i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that but if you can't make a like a connection with a human another human being uh or actually take the time to actively listen to what somebody's saying then you could have the best techniques in the world but it's never going to make a difference so it's nice to yeah so it's cool it's it's cool to to i don't know take some time and reflect on that and work on building up those skills too Mm-hmm. I totally agree. You could be master, uh, what do you call it, jack of all trades, but master of none. And I feel like if we can be just master of the soft skills that you talked about, then we can take those other skills that we learn and really apply them so much better with critical thinking, with listening and communication. Everything that we learn has to have a solid foundation. And I feel like these soft skills need to be that, that solid foundation. I agree. I think um, we, we've talked about this on here before, but you know, when you really break it down, like this is a service profession. This is a people oriented thing. I think in school, you, 
we kind of get lost in like the, you know, your manual therapy classes and your orthopedic classes and, you know, neuro and like learning about how the body works and all this stuff. But it can become so easy for you to forget that you're working with a human in front of you and that those people have feelings and they're afraid and they're worried. And there's like all these other things that are going on to like what is currently bringing them into that situation. And so just like you said, Vanessa, I think the more that, you know, you can use those soft skills and, and just like put all the PT stuff aside and just be a human with them and share human experience, give them validation that they are in pain, like give them encouragement and, and make sure that they, you know, know that regardless of what's going on, that you're going to try and do the best that you can with that situation. Because, you know, the reality is not everyone's going to get better, but if you can be a cheerleader or be on their side and try to empower them as much as possible, I think just that, that little bit of like human interaction and kindness and just recognizing, you know, that they are a person and not just somebody that's been juggled around in the medical system. I, I mm-hmm. think it's some of the biggest things that you can do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> you just mentioned um, empowering. And I think one thing that really resonated a lot with what you had said earlier, Vanessa, is that you're empowering your patients to kind of take, um, you know, charge of their own kind of stuff, you know, giving them some tools and strategies um, in the archery world and providing some information for them, but letting them, you know, take charge of that and take charge of their own. So, uh, you know, kudos to you. I think that's really awesome that you're, uh, you know, that's what you're about and you're, you're doing that for the uh, archery world. Thanks. I appreciate it. Just I, trying to vision our eight steps every day and we'll see where it takes, takes archery we had. I appreciate it. It really <laughs> means a lot to me that you, you say that. But I think it's cool, too, because you mentioned that there's already like an archery company that's reached out to you to do stuff. So I think that, you know, Mike and I talk a lot about like why we do this podcast, because it's our goal is for it to grow and be something that's bigger than us. I mean, we our thought initially was that like three people ever were going to listen to this and just be like us talking to microphones. Um, And, you know, not that we just never thought that people would care about anything that we had to say or that other, you know, other people that we brought on the show would have to say. But I think, you know, I think that's a testament to even though you're working in in a a niche population, it's a population that doesn't already have some sort of rehab infrastructure. And the fact that in such a short time, I mean, you said it was what, like 2018 that you started kind of doing like more archery focused rehab stuff that there's already been somebody that's reached out to you and said, hey, we've noticed that you've done some really cool stuff. How can we make this better and bigger than, you know, ourselves? So I think that's a testament to just, you know, you're, you're doing some awesome stuff. Thanks. I appreciate it. Same to you guys. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I really like what you're, what you're doing with Andy. Well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, literally half of it is just like me and Mike going back and forth about random stuff. <laughs> Bob Ross. Bob Ross, yes. <laughs> and rose wine. Yeah, we try to get uh, alliterations. I try to come up with an alliteration for every title. So um, I'm, I'm not sure what this is going to be. There's probably going to be some sort of like random like aardvarks or something. I'll just throw aardvarks in. It, it won't even be mentioned until just now on the podcast. And people are going to be so confused. Um, <clears throat> but speaking of aardvarks... Uh, <laughs> I want to kind of go back to archery technique because there's a there's this viral video. Um, are you familiar with Lars Anderson at all? Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this oh. has been on my mind since we started talking about uh, bows. Uh, so, Mike, have you seen? I'm pretty sure I've shown you this video. Is he the is he the rapid fire guy? Yes, he's the guy that like 
has done like ex- claims to be extensive research on like you know like cuneiform tablets and stuff and and pictographs that show that like for generations archers held the their arrows in their draw hand and it lets you shoot like quicker and more rapid fire for like mounted combat and everything else and for the people that haven't seen this video we got to we have to link this we'll in. link it yeah it is amazing this dude is doing like back backflips he's like jumping off of stuff like doing like parkour and like shooting arrows um i just want to know how realistic that is and like do you have thoughts on because obviously like you've trained this for sport purposes but like i'm just wondering if you have some deep-seated like archery history knowledge or something that you can you know drop on us or something <laughs> regarding <laughs> lars lars anderson and his claims I, okay i just have to let it out there i feel like in my world of archery maybe there's like a couple of different worlds of archery but in the one that i know so the competitive one Lars Anderson is like public enemy number one. <laughs> as soon as he has a video, I think he just uploaded a new one a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. It exploded on Facebook and everybody that I know because everyone's just freaking out saying, okay, this guy is back. We thought he was gone for good. <laughs> he's, he's public enemy number one for us. But that being said, maybe in his archery world, I mean, he could be god of archery to them. So... I personally have never run around the forest with my bow, jumping and doing backflips and, <laughs> and, you know, shooting three arrows at a time. So I don't know how hard it is. Maybe his method is right. But the only thing I need to say about him is that he needs to work on his jumps a little bit. <laughs> I think he has a three-inch vertical. <laughs> <laughs> but so so I guess I'm curious, why, how has he become labeled, like, public enemy number one in the archer world is it just because he's like showy social media type stuff like does like crazy antics and it takes away from what the sport of archery is or maybe a it... little bit of that a little, that pe- people don't want to admit to that but it makes it into somewhat of a i don't know a weird thing but i think mostly public enemy number one because he's claiming to know the secrets of archery and he's done the research whereas I think we're we're more focused on performance and what actually makes an arrow go in the middle rather than you know quick shots and, and that sort of thing. But that might appeal to other people who are focused on you know survival and hunting and, and that sort of thing. That's totally outside of my realm of what I know in archery, but maybe that's why he's public enemy number one, because he's claiming to know it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think this is a larger like metaphor for um, a lot of the guruistic uh rehab courses right Uh like you have someone that that says like oh i have all this secret knowledge and i've studied cuneiform tablets and (laughs) the egyptian pictographs and this painting from like 1077 clearly shows that you know the proper way to to, you know knock your arrow is on the the draw hand i mean we see it the same way in in uh, like rehab like every con ed course is always like Hey, we have the secrets to getting people pain free. Like, we're gonna, we can show you how to do it in 24 hours, and you're gonna be a god in the rehab world. But <clears throat> I think that that kind of like it plays back into the whole critical thinking conversation that we've had because I think that there's a tendency to like see all these interesting and unique things and want to be able to to bring them on because it makes you a better clinician. But at the same time, like those certifications and 
you know, those cool tricks don't necessarily make you connect pe with people better or actually improve your metrics. You might learn a trick or a tip that's useful for like a certain situation, but is that like 72 hour course really going to make you a better clinician or is constantly like questioning and learning and just the experience of like growing as a human being make you a better clinician? Totally. I didn't even see that parallel coming, but good, good job for, for drawing that. Is it, I mean, the, the, we're always going to draw these parallels to pretty much everything. I'm sure we could probably, like, you could give me, like, the little engine that could book, and I'm sure Mike and I could find some way to relate it back to rehab. But, um, <laughs> but it's it just that, you know, well, because you guys are in Michael Amato's group, one of, one of the favorite things that he always says is, um, are you a Star Wars fan? I could, I know a little bit of Star Wars. Okay. The quote that he always brings up is only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> right? Because the world of rehab is, is gray. Mm. And I think that when you start making claims and guaranteeing people, you know, whether it's talking about injury prevention or, you know, in the case of the great Lars Anderson, or not so great Lars Anderson, <laughs> um, proper archery technique. You know, you see it with every single um, course. And even though we've certainly taken some of these and we, we pull stuff from them, like, you know, if you get too far on that absolute spectrum where this is the only way or you have to do this, I think it takes away from your ability to, to think critically and you you become more of like a, a pawn, if we're going to mm -hmm. use a, the chess analogy, because archery is kind of like sky chess. Sky chess. <laughs> That's a new one. And also... The fact that people can be claiming that they know the secrets to a certain thing or, you know, they've done the research and they have the information and wh whoever their target audience is does not have the, the, the right information. It creates this power imbalance. And I think that's totally unfair because no one should claim to know everything or claim to know the secrets and make someone else feel like, well, I need to pay three hundred dollars, and I'll I'll send you the money through PayPal in order to get in on those secrets. I, I think that's that's totally wrong. Mm -hmm. well, Down and, with Lars Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I get. Is he like? Would he be like the Naughty Aguilar of of archery? Like, is he like the functional patterns of archery? Oh, oh. could be. I, I, I'm not naming any names. Uh, yeah, so moving on, uh, <laughs> Mike, I'm going to drink this water and look not suspicious or like that I'm doing a Deer Park ad. <laughs> if we get sponsored by Deer Park, I swear. Um, okay, anyway, yes, so um, we're, we're running up uh, near near the end of our show here. We've just got a couple other questions here for you. Um, and so just kind of curious on, on some of your perspectives here, you know, uh, one question we do like to ask, you know, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? You know, do you have like a favorite failure of yours or anything like that? Yeah, I, I kind of touched upon this earlier, but the one competition I never made it to was the Olympics. And actually, my journey to try and, and get to the Olympic trials, I did make it to two Olympic trials, was a really long one. So I, in 2008, I took time off school. I was in my undergrad at the time. And I moved to Korea, and I was training full time. So I put a lot on the line. And I was trying to make it to the Olympics. And actually, I didn't make it that year. And I was heartbroken. I thought, well, I, I deserve this. I stopped school for this. I was training every single day, you know, like six days a week from morning to night. 
I trained so hard that my fingers were bleeding. I had so many injuries, which was probably not the smart thing, but I thought I had put in the effort. And in the end, I didn't make that goal and I felt like it was a huge failure. But then in 2012, I thought, okay, next Olympics, I'll try it again. So I went back to Korea, but my mindset was really different. I think this time I was thinking, I have nothing to lose. Let's just do the best I can every single day. Let's enjoy the process. I actually, st I wasn't shooting at the time. My coach took away my bow and started me off by just drawing back elastic bands and doing push-ups and, and doing all this like side training. And I loved that process because I knew every day I was putting in 110%. In the end, you already know the end of the story, but I didn't make the Olympics again. And it was a little heartbreaking that I didn't make it, but I think my focus was a lot, a lot different this time around, where I was happy that I worked that hard Maybe it wasn't meant to be, but I, I really enjoyed the process. I really liked applying myself and putting that time and energy into it that I think in the end it wasn't that bad. Now when someone asks me, oh, did you make the Olympics? It's often the first question that they ask. I go, no, but I really enjoyed my whole archery career and everything that I've done to this day. So I think in the end that failure or quote-unquote failure has turned into me learning a lot more, more about perspective, about mm -hmm. mindset, and about the process. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> there it is. This usually happens every uh, every episode, but usually I'll get some chills and go, oh, um, that just happened. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a, a fantastic story, you know, um, and really kind of speaks to resiliency uh, and, and changing, like you said, that mindset and that perspective. Right. Um, it's it's kind of neat to, to see, you know, th that kind of parallel between you know, how you handled it in 2008 versus how you handled it in 2012, right? Um, and how you're able to overcome that and say, you know, these challenges that I had were were a part of it and I enjoyed that, you know, um, that whole process of growth and, and kind of going through. It, it speaks to, you know, like what we talked about in the first uh, mentee meeting and then also um, reminds me of uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'd say... It, and I couldn't have learned those lessons unless I had those failures. So I'm really grateful for that in the end. As heartbreaking as it was at the time, I'm, I'm grateful for what I went through. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we t what do we talk about? What is that? There's some quote that's, uh, what is it? I think it's, well, it's it's all about experience. One of them which, which comes to mind is like, uh, never trust a sailor who's never weathered a storm. Oh, um, I like that. Yeah, and so, you know, if you're always riding just smooth waves, you don't really challenge yourself and you don't really know um, much about yourself. But because you've, you know, put yourself through these trials and tribulations, you know, you have a greater perspective of who you are as a person and what you want um, and have a better understanding of, you know, and I go, resiliency and all that too, which is kind of neat. But, sweet. <laughs> I feel like there's like an alchemist quote that we should bring out, but I don't know which one is appropriate here. Oh, that's true. Um, we usually do reference an alchemist quote in, <laughs> in a lot of these. Comes up a lot. So, in a completely unrelated, just like random question, what's your favorite Korean food? Oh, I love Korean food. It's just what I eat and breathe, and and I just if I could sleep in, I'm just kidding. That's that's weird. But oh. Okay, just Korean barbecue in general. Mm. Pork yeah. belly, it's just so good. <clears throat> and I'm obviously a little bit biased because I am Korean, but I think Korean food is pretty darn good. Yeah, pork belly at Korean barbecue. 
I I would have to definitely agree with you. So I grew up um, where I'm from in Virginia. There's a very like large concentration of like Korean and Vietnamese people. Mm. And so a lot of my friends growing up were Korean or Vietnamese. And so I grew up eating like, you know, and like would go to my buddy's house after school when I was like six. And there's always like rice in the rice cooker and there'd always be like little like you know, seaweed wrappers and like bulgogi in the fridge and like pickled radish and whatever else. So like, that's what I grew up eating. And because of that, in such a high population of Korean Vietnamese people in like Annandale, Virginia, there are just a ton of Korean barbecue restaurants. And so there, and then even out in like Centerville, Virginia, there's tons of like really, really, really like top quality Korean barbecue. And so because my uncle was in the Navy and he was stationed out in Japan and Korea for a while, we always eat Japanese or Korean whenever we go out to to do stuff and so like I love I'm like the biggest like Korean barbecue like just absolutely love it so good let's do it if you guys are ever in Toronto we'll do Oreo curling and then we'll go out for Korean barbecue (laughs) that sounds perfect (laughs) also we can do curling after as dessert there it is pork belly in general is just like one of the greatest gifts to mankind I mean, I don't know. I don't know why anyone would not want to eat pork belly. It's so good. So good. Well, that's perfect. We'll have to. Uh, we'll have to plan a trip up here. Jake and I had talked about doing a uh, kind of a roadshow tour, um, working on kind of like working our way up uh, East Coast and then coming up to Toronto and kind of working our way back, um, just visiting some of the people that we've had uh, the awesome opportunity to talk with and and all of that. And so. But some of the one of these points in time, we'll have to come up and and do some Korean barbecue and some curling and all that. <laughs> yeah, we we have to plan a trip because how far is Toronto from Boston? I I don't know exactly how far. I feel like maybe eight hours. I might be wrong. Boston to Toronto. Hmm. Yeah, I don't really know, but not too far. Not too far. Cause, cause, uh, Cam's in Toronto, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. So that would work out. The about an eight-hour drive. Eight hours, okay. So it's like eight hours to Boston from here. Eight hours mm-hmm. from Boston to. Toronto. And then there's some people in New York, like Andy Chen's in New York. Mm-hmm. Jasmine, Jasmine is in New York. Jasmine's in New York. Gary, Gary Dillon's in New York. We're going to have to plot this out. <laughs> It'll be like the antique roadshow without any of the antiques in auctioning. <laughs> it's just going to be the roadshow. I love it. <laughs> I'd watch it. Sure. sure, we could come up with some good stuff on the way. Is the uh, antique roadshow theme song music like public access? Cause it was I bet, on... probably. I feel like if we used that, there would be two people that listen to us that would know what the song is. I don't even know what it is. I just, because I said Antique Roadshow, it's on, it's on my mind. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. You're going to look it up? Okay, that's fantastic. All right. Um, so we're running up uh, near the end of our show here. Uh, and there is o- always one question that we do like to ask uh, our guests at the end of the uh, episode here. So uh, we here at the Movement Docs, we believe in always moving forward in all that you do. So based on all of your previous experiences in life, love, and the pursuit of happiness, what is one piece of advice that you'd give to anyone listening to this show to help them be the best versions of themselves? Mm. 
That's that's a tough one, but I think the big thing is just no matter what you do, to be grateful in everything. Be grateful for failures, successes, future successes, future failures, and lessons learned along the way. Always be grateful. Gratitude is the attitude. Mm, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Uh, Vanessa, we, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on our show today. Um, if anyone listening to the show wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way that they can do that? Well, you can find me on Instagram at Archer Rehab, and you can email me also at archerrehab at gmail.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks again for tuning in this week where we spoke with Vanessa Lee, PT. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, shoot us an email at tmdmovementdocs at gmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. You're going to hate that new Lars Anderson video, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go watch it again. There it is. <laughs>